In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Adam Young. Adam is a golf coach who specializes in skill development and motor learning. He believes there is no single best way to swing a golf club and that by providing golfers with appropriate tasks to complete and the correct types of feedback that it can be a very powerful tool for enabling golfers to self-organize a functional technique. Adam's book, The Practice Manual, is one of the best books I have ever read, and I'm not just talking about golf books. If you have any questions after the podcast, please feel free to inundate Adam with questions on Twitter. His handle is at AdamYoungGolf. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness, and health. There are programs to suit everyone, and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Adam Young. Adam, how are you doing? I'm, I'm happy to be on. I'm all alert. I've had like three or four coffees already, so yeah, I'm good to go. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I've actually experienced you in your very caffeinated state a few times now with various <laughs> podcasts and phone calls and stuff like that. So hopefully we can we can keep it under a, a reasonable time frame. Yeah. Adam, to get started, I would like you to provide us with a little bit of background info about you, your golf, your work, and maybe your education up to, to where you are at the moment. Yeah, full-time golf instructor. Uh, now I do a lot of stuff online. I start to create a lot of online programs, do a lot of online lessons, but I also teach live lessons. Um, but yeah, I, I've been instructing for well, since 2003. Uh, yeah, something like that. So almost 20 years now. And I've worked for the Ledbetter Academies for a long time of that. So, you know, learning about swing mechanics and things like that, traveling around the world, living in Austria, Gran Canaria, Florida, everywhere. Uh, teaching some high-level juniors, high-level players, all the way to complete beginners in Austria. A lot of it was players who never even held a golf club before and just learning to, you know, they have to do a certification where they, uh, they, they're not allowed on a golf course until they do the certification, basically. So it teaches them rules and everything like that. So I've got a good spectrum of, of level of player. Uh, I'm a little weird in that uh, it's becoming less weird now and I don't believe there's one perfect way to swing. I think there are many functional ways of getting the golf ball to do what you want. That's not to say any way goes. I know the counter argument to that is people say, oh, if you don't teach a swing model, what do you teach? And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll go through that in here. But there are certain fundamentals that all professionals have, certain fundamentals that all models have as well, whether you do a stack and tilt a ballard, a Irwin swing, or whatever method you use. So I've always focused on what are the true fundamentals? What are the things that you have to do to play uh, good level golf? And I focus on unique, unique ways of improving those as well. So skill development rather than just technique. I am a technical instructor. I can go as in-depth as the next pro on movement, but I also look at skill development, which is a unique way of improving your golf. Fabulous. Do you want to maybe tell us just before we get started what you consider those critical fundamentals to be, because I know they're quite different to the ones that a lot of golfers would think of as fundamentals. 
Yeah. So the I, I talk about the big three. So the big three are contacting the ground in the right place. So, you know, if you hit too far behind it, we call it a fat shot. If you hit it too far in front of the golf ball or even miss the ground completely, we call that a thin or top shot. So contacting the ground in the right place. If you do that, you will never, ever fat or thin it, guaranteed. Um, contact, contacting the center of the face or very close to the sweet spot, you know, in a consistent and functional place. We can get away with a lot more with modern equipment, but, you know, the best players in the world still have good strike patterns. So we don't want to hit too far on the toe or the heel. Those are the mistakes there. I'm sure lots of players hate that S word, the shank. I'll say it. I'll frighten everybody. <laughs> um, and then there is, so we've got ground contact, face contact, and then face direction. So the orientation where that club face is looking left or right when you hit it. That's the biggest determinant of direction. So those are the big three. Those are the things that when you hit a bad shot in golf, it's usually one of those three things that has changed from a technique point of view. Now, there are other things that we can add to those three, things like swing path. So that's the direction the club is moving through impact, whether you know we're out to in or in to out. Um, and lots of people put a lot of focus on that. I don't call it one of my big three because you can actually have an offline path and still play pretty good golf. We don't want to make it too far offline as well. Otherwise, we're losing some efficiency. Then there's a fifth fifth law that we could add to it, which is speed. That's something you deal a lot with. The faster that club head is moving, all else being equal, the longer the shot is going to be. And then we've got other optimization things like angle of attack and dynamic loft. So really, there are seven laws that I've listed there, seven laws of impact. And I, I really try and focus most people on the big three, the first three that I talked about there. Brilliant. So what you're going through here is a little bit different to what a lot of golfers would come across when they're searching for golf instruction. Could you maybe give your opinion on where you think the general state of golf instruction is at the moment, maybe if it's swayed too far one way or the other, or sort of how you maybe caution players to, to look into golf improvement might be a simpler way of saying it. Yeah, I think in the past, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, it was very common for everybody to really push models, you know, one way of swinging the club, you know, maybe an Adam Scott would have been a good model for it, something that looks very pretty. And models can work, definitely, but they can strain people into one specific way to, to achieve those laws that I talked about. And whereas, in fact, there are many different ways that you can do it. And if you have someone who's injured or is not as flexible as Adam Scott, which is about 99.9% .9 of the golf population out there, you, you probably need other ways of, of achieving the job. You know, in, in Austria, I had a lot of players with injured knees and they couldn't do weight shifts like a pro. And so we had to find other ways of helping them strike the ground in the right place. So... Yeah, we've gone. I think I think golf is definitely improving now in that all instructors or at least the ones researching the modern stuff are realizing that there's not one way to swing it. And so you're getting more instructors looking at different models, but they're combining them. They're saying, OK, there's value to this model, there's value to that model. And it gives us more options as instructors. And that's what I like to think of, you know, golf swing or the movement is just a series of options. You know, I can look at a player and say, well, in terms of their fundamentals, maybe they're hitting the ground too far behind. 
And then I'll say, well, what are the options here to move that ground contact forwards? And then I can pull from different models, different philosophies and swing movements and, and have a list of options in front of me and then select one that that player could potentially do based on what they can do physically. So I certainly think golf instruction is moving into a good direction in terms of that. Lots of players and, and instructors are talking about matchups now, which is like a, it's I, th I think the danger with the term matchups is people can think that there's an optimal set that, oh, well, if, if I have this move, I, I must have to have mm. this other one. And so I need to find the, the exact correct matchup. Whereas I, I like to think of it more as just functional combinations. You know, a Dustin Johnson has a different set of combinations to, um, to a Jordan Spieth or something like that, yet both can equally drive it similar in terms of strokes gain, perhaps. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming more freeing, I think, instructing, instruction, because we can get a person to a desired goal in less time. Because if I have a player in front of me, I don't have to completely revamp their swing and completely change everything about it in order to make them look like Adam Scott. What I can do instead is say, this is their existing swing. What one or two things could I add to it to make it function better? And that's a, a much better way of doing it. It allows for individuality. And, you know, I always say the best coaches are the ones where their players don't look all the same. If your players all look exactly the same, you're teaching a model, you're teaching a method, and that can be you, – you'll get a lot of players who do good with that, but then you'll do a lot of players who just – they can't fit your model, they can't fit your method. And so you need to be very adaptable as a coach, I think. So, awesome. um, yeah, go on. Um, something I have uh, learned or come across from your work as well is you've touched on the importance of coaches and players understanding how we learn things rather than just understanding the knowledge of what's happening, you know, in functional swings or in functional shots. Can you maybe touch on how your coaching is influenced by the world of motor learning rather than just maybe golf mechanics or physics yeah that's a that's a big question yeah and i i was very fortunate my first ever uh golf job was with a guy called scott cranfield and he's very into tony robbins and you know human motivation and things like that and i was very into those things as well and so i spent a lot of time thinking about how we learn how to improve and uh, spend a lot of time researching non-golf things, you know, even as esoteric as I would say motor learning, how you would rehab from, say, stroke injuries, things like that. And so there's so many different avenues. You can talk about things like um, setting the right task level for someone. So, you know, if someone, for example, is a complete beginner and they're having trouble getting, getting a ball airborne, I might actually give them a, a soccer ball or a whiffle, a, you know, a big air ball. I can't remember what they call it, like a soccer yeah, like ball a size. Ball. Yeah. yeah, it's filled with air. And we'll talk about hitting different parts of that. So it's, it's scaled up, essentially. So in terms of a complete beginner who can't understand, well, how do I control uh, swinging the club lower or higher? When you scale up the equipment like this, they understand it much better. And so setting a task that's easier for beginners – 
perhaps so they can they can learn with more comfort and build confidence um, or even when you get to the elite level you might want to scale tasks down and make things more difficult so for example i might place a tall pro in a bunker a fairway bunker and ask them to hit shots as far as they can from there and that's a more difficult task than hitting on the fairway because on the fairway if you hit an inch and a half behind it you might lose 10 percent of distance Whereas in a fairway bunker, if you hit an inch and a half behind it, you might lose 50, 60, 70% of distance. So it really highlights the error and forces you to place more attention on that task and forces you to improve that skill. So we call that kind of constraints-led learning. And that leads into the other topic is, is attention, where we place our attention and its effect on learning and retention of uh, uh, so performance, retention of performance, transference to the golf course. So, you know, I, I've I've got all these different models and there's <laughs> loads of different ways of doing it, but I've got five different types of attention that I talk about. So number one type of attention we call internal, and that's pretty much what every listener is going to be uh, doing right now. So an internal focus is when you're thinking about a movement, a body position. So, for example, if you're thinking about your weight shift, or if you're thinking about your shoulder turn, or if you're thinking about keeping your left arm straight, that's what we call an internal focus. It's, uh, it's inside of our body or a body piece. We also have external focuses. So external would be thinking about either thinking about the target, where the target is in space, you know, or, or thinking about the shape of shot, the curvature that you're trying to hit. Or more commonly, what I use is I call these um process focuses you're thinking about what the club is doing so where did my club hit the ground where did i hit on the face where did i present the club face what path did i swing that club through impact and i have very simple analogies to change those things as well so for example lots of listeners will have heard me talk about a a nail drill where i have a ball with a nail through it and i can angle that in different directions and so when i say to a person focus on the nail and try and hammer it in that direction and what i'm doing is i'm giving them an external focus they're not thinking about body pieces they're thinking about something outside of their body they're thinking about the nail and that intent alone can change the mechanics of their swing. So when you video someone, if I if I videoed a golfer and asked them to hammer a nail to the left and hammer a nail to the right, and we viewed those swings side by side, they would look very different mechanically, and the player's not thinking about it. So, you know, placing our attention in different areas, then that goes into what we call self-organization as well, how the body can change movements without us thinking about it. You know, lots of players say, oh, I have to think about what my right arm is doing. And then I do that nail drill for them and their right arm self-organizes into a better position and they're not thinking about it. So it's it's really interesting. Lots of different ways of changing someone's mechanics. So we've got internal versus external focuses. And there's like 20 years of research on that now by Gabby Wolf and others showing that there's a greater level of learning and retention of performance and even transference of that performance when you use external focuses and internal focuses. While I still use them, I use them sparingly. 
because it can cause a lot of disruption. I'm sure lots of players have found this who are listening, that they've been given something internal to work on and then their coordination has just gone out of the window and they, you know, they can't even hit the ball anymore. And so there's a danger with internal stuff. I still use them, right? I try and use them sparingly and, and in the right dose. I think that's maybe one of the areas where people can get really confused or might even, you know, not be, not really understand what you try and do with your approach to coaching or what other coaches similar to you might be trying to do. You talk so little about mechanics and so much about trying to achieve a certain task at impact. You're still trying to change mechanics. It's just doing it with a much different focus because like I think, you know, we all agree on the golf ball responds to the physics that are going on through impact. And for that to change, mechanics have to change somehow. Like just thinking about something different isn't going to change it unless the actual mechanics change. But we have options for how the mechanics can change. We can really, really think and focus on what different parts of our body are doing. Or we can focus on something that's nothing to do with our body and more what you were talking about, like a nail drill, or I know you have, you know, simple ones where you're just talking about, you know, trying to make sure the bottom of the club skims the grass and things like this. So I think that's an important kind of point that people understand. It's not that you're anti-mechanics or that mechanics aren't important. It's how we go about changing mechanics can be very different. And a term I've, I've heard you use before, and I'll, ask you to speak a little bit about it is by focusing on an outcome or a skill or a type of shot you can learn the mechanics for free can you exactly. dig into what you mean by that yeah so i mean to your point and this this is probably the most important point i could ever make is that the result of your shot is a result of what happened through impact with your club. And I'm not even talking about body positions, you know, how rotated you are with your body impact. I'm talking about literally what the club head does through impact, which is about half an inch, three quarters of an inch of space. That is where the magic lies. If your ball slices off to the right, it's because of what happened through impact. So then if, if you want to change the outcome, you absolutely have to change impact. And as you said, how we go about that can be different. You know, traditionally, we've gone about direct mechanics. Let's change people's elbows and positions like that. And that, that can work, definitely. Oh, it does work. Um, or we can, I could, as a coach, give a player a task and help them figure it out, figure out the task. So, for example, a, a simple task might be I, I used to get on a piece of concrete and draw a little dot on it with a, a dry erase marker on the concrete. And we used to use an old club. And I'd say, right, make a swing and just gently chip the concrete and try and make the first contact with the concrete on that dot. So that's where the ball is going to be. And inevitably, the first time someone does it, they'll hit maybe six inches behind it. And they'll go, huh, that's not where I wanted to hit it. I thought I was going to hit that dot. And then they do it again and they hit six inches behind again. And they maybe have three, four, five attempts and they hit six inches behind. And then I'll step in and I'll say, what would it feel like to hit too far in front of that? And then they give it an attempt and all of a sudden they hit that spot. 
And I go, oh, wow, that's weird. I'm trying to hit in front of it, but I'm hitting that spot. And I say, well, yeah, so there's a, a little bit of a disconnect at the moment be between what you want and what you're achieving. You know, at the moment, you're hitting six inches behind what you want. And that may change in the future. But for now, in order to hit that spot, you have to feel what you just did for that last swing. And so and after a little bit of practice, these things start to combine a little bit. So what they want to achieve and what they do starts to get closer together. So if I ask them to hit an inch in front or an inch behind, they do it more, more exact. So that happens over time when the feedback is there and they're given enough reps of it and they explore it a little bit, you know, trying to do too much in front, trying to do too much behind, they start to get better. And so that's what I'm talking about with the mechanics. And you, you rightly said, if you, if you change something at impact, the mechanics have to have changed. I'm just doing it in a different way through these tasks. I'm giving someone a task. They are not thinking about the mechanics. That's the very big difference between what I'm doing there and what traditional instruction does. Which you think and research supports is very important for how well we learn that change and how well we'll hold on to it and be able to make it happen on the golf course 48 hours later. Is that a fair point? Yeah, I think, I mean, they're just different ways of learning. I could also have taken that player and instead of asking them, can you hit in front of it? I could have said, can you shift your weight more? You know, and that might have achieved the same outcome. But the problem is when we're on the golf course, we have to adapt to certain things. Like the ball might be sitting above our feet at one time. The ball might be below it the next. Um, we might have be in a divot or something. Um, we might be in a bad lie. And so we have to change. We have to adapt to these different environmental cues. And we also have to adapt to what our body gives us on the day. You know, when I wake up and I go and hit a few shots, some days I'm striking it ball and ball and turf perfectly. Other days I'm hitting a couple of inches fat and I need to recalibrate that. And I personally feel, and most of the research backs this up, that when you do things, when you learn these skills, hitting the ground in the right place in this example, when you learn these skills with external focuses and through intention, it's far more transferable when we have to be in a situation where we need to adapt like the golf course. So I, I'm not against learning ground contact through things like weight shift. In fact, I would use that as a supplement in my own training with players. You know, when I give players, I, I will tell them, look, you can learn this skill through let's spend some time focusing on increasing your weight shift. And let's spend a lot of time just focusing on the external task of hitting different parts on the ground. But I much more prefer those last ones. I think I think when you have the ability to change something through intention, you know, as in saying, I want to do this and you get closer to it. So, for example, I want to hit two inches farther forwards. I want to hit two inches farther back or even other skills might be I want to hit more on the toe. I want to hit more on the heel. Once you improve that skill, that ability you almost don't need to ever worry that much about your swing because you can change anything you want at will when when you have those abilities and i think in combination with good mechanics i think that can be a very powerful a, a very powerful combination yeah yeah something that i think about and i'd like to get your opinion on in terms of the balancing 
mechanics and skill development is that something I, I definitely believe in and I think I've experienced myself is that good mechanics make it much easier to develop a high level of skill. Because if, yeah. if you're using a motion, I know it's very hard to put in a box what are good mechanics and bad mechanics. I think we have a decent enough understanding of them from watching enough golf swings. When you watch a, a tournament that's full of good players or you're at the range and there's a beginner class on, you can kind of get quickly a sense of, okay, what, te- what might be good or not so good mechanics. But if you're using a motion, it, certain types of motions may make it very difficult to develop a high level of skill, even if mm-hmm. there's really good instruction being given to what you want to have happen at impact. Is that a time where you might see it's more important for direct mechanical instructions to be given in terms of, okay, we for a reason I'll, I'll give this here is I'm going on a little bit of a tangent now is, but I can remember uh, coaching some players in the gym uh, back in Ireland and, and even here in the U.S., and beginner players, especially adults who hadn't played golf before or hadn't played other, say, bat and ball sports before, they they used often comment on how their swing improved from doing things like medicine ball throws because rotational medicine ball throws because they were almost forced to use their body in a reasonably efficient way to develop enough power to throw the ball a decent distance. Whereas because a golf ball is light and we're essentially concerned with not missing it when we first start out, we can use motions that are never really going to allow us to develop a very high level of skill. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, um, you've thrown a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions there in a way. But yeah, on, the, on that topic, um, I think about we, – we had Dr. Rob Gray on yesterday on our podcast – and he was talking about, you know, how, say, for example, you give someone a hammer and you ask them to hammer a nail. Well, if they've never done it before, they're going to be very, very cautious. And they're actually going to lock in degrees of freedom. So they might stiffen their wrist up. They might stiffen their shoulder up and just use a, a very simple motion that might not be powerful, might not be very efficient, but it avoids them missing the nail. And you'll often see this with beginner golfers. They'll often, you know, after a few wild swishes at it and completely missing at it, they start to get a little shorter with their swing. They start to lock their wrists in. Um, And so that is not always a bad thing. While that doesn't look like a professional, that player might need that motion at that moment in time. Because their coordination is not to the level of a pro, of pro. If you ask that complete beginner to say, oh, look at this blacksmith over there who's been doing it for 30 years. Look how he does it so fluidly and he bends his arm and, you know, and then copy that. What's going to happen to that player? They're going to whack their thumb 20 times in a row. So, you know, that's because they have different coordinations. And so we have to be careful, I suppose, when looking at professionals and, and how they move. And we have to say, well, sometimes, you know, they move in a way because their bodies are built differently or their bodies are just just coordinate differently at that time. But, you know, on the flip side of that, we also have to be careful not to let a beginner get completely stuck in this locked in method forever. So, you know, when I'm when I'm dealing with beginners and progressing them through their journey, I'm just aware of both sides of the argument there. Um, And 
you know, again, it, it's looking at what is the goal of that player. If the goal is to hit it, for that player to hit their best shots, then you don't necessarily have to unlock certain degrees of freedom for them. Whereas if they say, right, well, I hit it 100 yards now and I want to be a tall player in 10 years and I'm going to do every single thing I can in my power to do it and I have a really strong growth mindset then i might say all right yeah let's start to copy the pro let's start to copy the blacksmith you're probably going to hammer your thumb 20 times in a row it's going to hurt but eventually you're going to have the potential to to do what they do so there's this just this balancing act really but um yeah the other thing that you mentioned was you know technique good technique helps you be more skillful yeah, you could say that. You could say it helps you demonstrate skill, maybe not become more skillful. So the example of that, I would say, or an analogy would be, imagine someone shooting a gun at a target. And you're, you know, you could say the skill of the person would be able, you know, they could uh, go higher, they could go lower, they could go more left, more right, they can hit that target over and over, and they can even adapt. So if you give them a different gun that has more of a recoil and they start start to go higher, they can adapt to that. So you'd say that's a very skillful gun shooter. Well, now, if you put them on a trampoline and you ask them to hit that target, you've just made the technique harder for them. They could be the same skill, but you've made the technique more difficult because they're doing it on a, bouncing on a trampoline. And so golf is the same, right? You can you can improve someone's skill, but they could have a technique that's making it very difficult for them. So an example of this would be if if play if people listening have heard of the term low point in the swing. So if you think of the swing as a circle, so the club head travels in a circle around your body and it's traveling down, 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 it meets the ball, then it travels down further, we take a divot. Then we meet the low point of the swing and the club starts traveling up. So the lowest point of the swing is the lowest point of that circle, effectively. Now, say you have two players and one player, just like all pros, they have their low point of the swing in front of the ball. Okay, pros are on average have about four to six inches in front of the ball. And then you've got a second player who has his low point of his swing behind the golf ball. Now, both of those may be able to hit decent shots when on a tee, okay, when the ball is teed up. However, if you stick both of those players on tight lies, the player with the low point behind is going to have much more difficulty, even if he has as, as equal skill or even higher skill sometimes. And the reason why is, you know, when we make a swing, sometimes that hula hoop, sometimes that circle is going to drop deeper into the ground. You know, we'll take a deeper divot. Sometimes it goes a little shallower. The player with the low point in front of the ball is going to achieve more similar outcomes for any up and down error, for any depth changes. Whereas the player with the low point behind the ball, they're going to be hitting six inches behind it and thinning it even if the circle is moving up and down the same amount. So there's, I, I know this is hard to visualize over a podcast, but it's, it's all to say that in terms of geometry, there are certain swing characteristics that make it easier to play golf. And that's what, when I am changing technique with a player, that's what I try to do. I try to help players have better techniques and also at the same time improve their skill level. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I think um, 
maybe a more direct way of what I was trying to explain a minute ago is that there is there a case or there may be a case for players having maybe some of their practice or some of their training time literally just focusing on a more efficient movement pattern even if it involves not having a ball it may but it may not it doesn't have to involve swinging a golf club or hitting a ball so it won't be focusing on any of the seven key factors that you've talked about because it's not a golf shot but they're learning to move their body in a fashion that will make those much more likely or much easier definitely yeah i mean the the reasons to change technique are what we just talked about um you know, making a movement perhaps that gives you a bigger margin for error or is it's an easier technique or injury prevention. You know, if someone's doing a movement that's hurting them and we can uh, take stress out of their body, then there's a good time to change that technique. And when you're doing that, yes, I, I like to devote specific times to technique change. So I have five different types of practice and one of those is technique specific practice. And it's, I talk about periodization as well, or trying to compartmentalize the goals for training. I think lots of times people have competing goals. For example, many golfers will be trying to change their motion. And at the same time, they're trying to hit their best shots. And they might be actually just competing at the moment because it, there may be some time where you have to say, right, I'm just going to dedicate this hour to making a movement change. And even if the outcome is bad, I'm going to put all my focus on the movement change. I call it kind of gun to the head motion. Uh, motion. So you know, lots of people say to me, oh, I can't change my motion. I've tried to do this and I just can't do it. And I said, well, if someone held a gun to your head and said, you have to make this motion that you're trying to make. And if you don't, I'm going to pull the trigger. And the outcome doesn't matter as well. You can guarantee that next swing they're going to make is going to be the motion that they desire. So people can make these motions. They often have these competing interests, for example, trying to hit a good shot. That's stopping them make that motion. So, yeah, there are times where I'll dedicate maybe an hour or so to just, just making the right motion. And you've got to take off or peel away some layers. So you might have to peel away the, the result in some regard. So that might be done through hitting an air ball, a wiffle ball, or something like that, or even paper balls. Sometimes I'll blow up balloons and make players uh, hit the balloon. Or sometimes we'll just do practice swings. Um, and that during that time as well, more of the feedback is on, did you make the motion that we, we wanted to make? Yeah. I think and you've done a the, lot of that right, yourself. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you, you've you've done a lot. Yeah. And I think kind of one of the reasons where our, yeah, so one of the reasons why I, I guess, value the importance of, of movement pattern and motion is one of the things in golf that I'm most interested in because I work in it is, is power and speed. And I think that there's so many golfers are using a motion that even if they get reasonably good control and skill with the motion that they're using, they've put in a reasonably low ceiling on their potential because that motion is just never going to deliver enough speed that allows them have a good chance of getting to the quality of golf they want. And if they want to break through that, there might need to be a big period where it's like, okay, I actually need to change my swing 
pattern, my movement pattern quite a bit so that I can create enough enough power, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that, if you if you ask even beginners to hold an alignment stick in their hands or a nice light object and just swish it as fast as they can, most people are going to make a pretty good motion. I mean, they'll even shallow it in nine times out of 10. They'll have that nice late release with forward shaft lean that everybody looks for. Um, but they'll also tend to leave the face 45 degrees open. And so, you know, if you ask a player, okay, I want you to swing as fast as you can, make a beautiful motion and hit a good shot, they're probably their first 10 shots are going to fly 45 degrees to the right while they do this. And then because of these competing interests, that player will say, well, I don't like that. I want to make the ball go on the target. And then they'll start doing the old motions like early release coming over the top to try and get that club face squared back up again. So this is the value of, right, let's take away the result when you're initially, at least when you're initially working on technique. Maybe let's hit some balloons and see if you can make that nice motion. And then once we've got it once you've got the motion as desired, lots of times as a coach, I can see other things that are happening that might ne produce negative results. So I might see this beautiful motion and then in slow mo on the slow motion camera, you can see that face is 45 degrees open. So then I could add something to that player. I could say, all right, let's, let's try and grip it a little bit stronger for this next one or add a little bit of rotation at the bottom forearm supination or even change wrist angles to just in, in an attempt to close the face so now that beautiful motion works and again that's very difficult to think of these two things at once so initially you know if you're trying to hit good results thinking about two things at once it can a coordination's thrown off and you can hit a lot of bad shots and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're making a bad motion you could be making a much better motion. It's just not ingrained yet, or you haven't added some other things that are going to make it really function well. And so there's, yeah, there's a time to take that result away, work only on the motion. There are disadvantages to that approach as well. But if you're, if you're getting coached nicely through it, uh, then, then it can be the best approach to learning, definitely. That brings us on nicely to the next, one of the sections that I wanted to get onto, which is, uh, performance in practice versus learning in practice, which is something that you talk about quite a lot in your book. And I think you set it up there nicely with if somebody is practicing, they may have improved their motion or improved their technique, but at the beginning, they might not actually be hitting better shots because they're mm -hmm. coordinate. They, they don't know how to coordinate the face at impact with this motion. And it's kind of it's kind of a catch twenty two that a lot of that all of us golfers, I suppose, that are interested in getting better, get into it at some point. It's this change that I'm trying to make that I'm slightly worse with now. Is it going to allow me to be better in one year, three years, five years, ten years? And I think a lot of golfers struggle with the initial. Oh no, this 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 move can't be the right direction for me because I just had a terrible range session. I was hitting it so badly. Whereas last week before I tried to make this change, I actually played okay. But that's the level they've been playing at for the last five years. Nothing's changed and they know it's not the level they want to be at. So can you dig into why performance in practice might not actually tell us much about how that practice is going to benefit us down the line? 
it's it's probably one of the hardest things as a player and i remember going through it myself to to know that a swing change that you're trying to do is the right one and there's always a little bit of crystal ball needed with it but i think if you're going with the right instructor and this is key for most people if you're going to make severe swing changes you probably want to do it under the supervision of an instructor and one who who knows this stuff as well because i mean there are certain things in geometry that make sense you know if you add weight shift you're going to move the low point forwards things like that um but there's a lot of bad instruction out there as well i don't want to make make the podcast about that there's a hell of a lot more good instructors but name names um, you know <laughs> I, I don't know any names, but uh, but yeah, there's based on old stuff. You know, I, I had a, a lot, lot of it as well in terms of you know just oh make your swing like this. Well, why? Because oh because it looks prettier or something, and that's not a good reason to change your swing. So finding an instructor who knows the reason and can give you a detailed answer for why we're making a change. If someone asks you to make a change and and you say well why? What's that going to change for me? And they can't tell you, uh, then that's that's probably not a good change that you want to make. So yeah, making the right change is, is key. But then, you know, even with the right change, you can have poor performance initially. The analogy I'd say for someone with that is imagine you've been driving a, I don't know, I drive a, a Corsa, <laughs> name an American car for, for me, that's not great. Um I mean, okay, I've got a Mustang. It's a, it's a decent yeah. car. But if I jump from that Mustang into a Formula One car, that's a much higher, high-powered car. But I'd probably crash it the first time. If I tried to go, you know, push it to its limits initially, I'd probably crash it. Doesn't mean that that car is bad. So think of the car as the technique. You know, you jump into a new technique, a new car that's better. You might crash it while you're getting used to it. But once you get used to it, your potential to go around that track is much, much more now. So it's the same with technique. And yeah, initially when you're learning something, your performance, you might see a performance drop, but that doesn't mean that you're not learning in the future. So, you know, learning, we have to look at long-term as well. We have to look at retention of performance. So often we'll get enamored by, we'll do something on the range, and the flip side of that is we might have great performance on the range and we might think, oh, I'm learning a lot here. You know, so for example, in terms of blocked versus random practice, often so block practice is where you're hitting over and over and over. You're just doing a repetitive motion, whereas random practice is where you might be switching clubs, switching targets, switching lies, things like that. When you look at those two types of practice, the performance is better when you're doing blocked. Okay, so as you're doing it, someone might hit 10 targets in a row when they're doing blocked, whereas when they're doing random practice, they might only hit three targets in a row. However, if you look at those players a week later, you might see it flip. You might see a stagnation of growth in the blocked practice player, whereas you might have seen a lot of growth in the random practice player. So there's the difference between performing now and learning, which is what happens long term or even retention of that learning. Um, and then there's transference as well, which is what we're ultimately all looking for when we're trying to learn something. We're ultimately trying to get it to transfer to the golf course. And this has been shown in other studies when when you do blocked practice, you might have great 
great performance during the block practice and then you put into a real game situation it's like you never trained at all and lots of players listening to this will be familiar with that where they're doing block practice and hitting balls great and then they go on the course and it's left right and they're everywhere so that's not to say block practice is bad uh, I do push people more towards random practice. There's a time and a place for block practice as well, but it's just highlighting the differences in the research between performance, learning, and transference. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, don't always relate good performance to learning and don't always relate bad performance to learning as well. It's uh, They can be very different things. Yeah, no, that's really good. There's there's two things that I thought of when you were going through that, and I think they're both important, is the first one in terms of how do we know if what we're working on is going in the right direction for us? And one of the ways that I think is is good to view this is that if you're going through some sort of change in the hope of getting better, it's hard for everybody when they do it. Like we've all, you know, taken a lesson where a good coach has given us good information. And when we're trying to implement it, you know, our coordination is off. We hit a lot of bad shots, but we eventually tend to get it right a couple of times. And if you can see that the quality of shot that you're capable of when you get that new technique right is far superior to your quality of shot before you knew about that technique, I think that's a good sign that you're working in the right direction because hopefully over time, you'll be able to hit more of those really good shots that are way better than the ones you were able to hit before. And when you don't quite pull it off, they're not going to be disastrous because your your technique, your coordination will have improved with the new technique. Yeah, I got a couple of stories with that, I suppose. I mean, one, one of them's more of a theoretical one, but say I have a player who has their low point of their swing behind the ball. And this is where data is is handy. I mean, you can you can tell that without data, really. But um, you would see on a launch monitor a positive angle of attack. So imagine they're doing this with an iron, which is suboptimal. Okay, So they're hitting up three degrees on an iron. You just... You cannot play elite level golf doing that because you 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 can't hit off varying lies doing that. You're going to have a lot of fat shots, a lot of thin shots. So we say we need to move this low point forwards with this player. Well, obviously, I could I could take the approach that I talked about earlier. I could ask them to make their divot more forwards, or I could take a more um, technical approach. I could ask them to shift their weight to achieve this more forward low point. And what we might see, if, if they do that correctly, if they shift their weight correctly or more, you would see an improvement in the angle of attack. It would go from three up to hopefully three to five degrees down or something. And so I would deem that as a success in that, that, in that moment because I'm like, we've achieved the goal. We've put you now in position to be able to play tall level golf or better, better golf. However... What if that player is doing that perfect low point, but they're now hitting out the shank of the club? <laughs> the results are going to be horrible, but that doesn't mean we haven't improved that player. We just need to find something else that can, you know, recalibrate that face strike as well. So, you know, I might see an improvement in angle of attack, and then I just have to add something or maybe even just change what I'm giving them technically 
to uh, to achieve both outcomes effectively. But lots of players would, you know, maybe give up on those first few because they hear the first few shanks and they say, oh, well, I can't do this. It's like, no, you can do this. We just need to add a few other things. You know, it's like jumping into that Formula One car again and saying, well, you know, crashing it the first time and getting out and saying, oh, I can't do it. Yeah. Like, no, you just need to, maybe you need to turn this car less. It's got a more sensitive steering or something. So, yeah, and the, the other example of that uh, is more personal one. I've always been a short hitter of, of the golf ball. And I was especially short when I didn't have optimal launch angles. And so with a driver, I had to learn from hitting slightly down with the driver to hitting more on the upswing, so a positive angle of attack. And I knew because it's physics, we all know now that if you hit more up on it, you have more potential for distance. It's not to say everybody should hit up on it, but it's just to say, you know, if, if you want to hit as far as possible with your given swing speed, hitting up on it is going to achieve that for you. So I wanted to go that route. And so I, you know, I understood what I needed to do. I got more behind it. I was swinging more from in, in to out. I was feeling more extension, jumping up more through impact. And I could see on the on the track man that my angle of attack was moving in the right direction i started to hit up on it more i went from like three to five degrees down to now i was hitting three or five degrees up so i've just improved my potential i've just raised the bar there however in those first few sessions of doing that, I was hitting it all over the face. I'd thin one, I'd sky one. I didn't have as good club face control because it was a new motion. And so what I saw was maybe out of 10 shots, I would see nine bad ones, but one that was better than I've ever hit it before. And so that was enough for me to say, all right, this is this is a route I want to go because I know with just repetition, keep on doing this, I'm going to turn that one out of 10 good shot into seven out of 10 or even 10 out of 10. And that did happen over months. It took, it took about three months for me to fully get used to it. And after years of doing it now, I don't even think about it. So that's, you know, how we learn th th first things have to be very conscious. We have to focus on them a lot. And if we don't focus, we go back to our old way of doing it. But after enough repetitions, things actually become automatic and um, thinking about them actually hurts you in that, in that case. Yeah. And I think what's really important there too, to note for the listeners is that you're talking about how difficult this change was for you. And you were already a really, really highly skilled player. Mm -hmm. So if we get, let's say, a double-digit handicap or, a, you know, let's say a 10 handicap or a 20 handicap or a beginner, it's, it's likely to be even more difficult for them at the beginning to make these changes or, or not so much to make the changes, but to see good outcomes in a in a ball flight or a strike when they've made a significant change so i think it's really important that if people do make a decision that they're going to try and develop a technique that increases their potential they really need to accept that there might be a lot of bad shots in practice at the start and there may be no there's probably no way around that and you need to have some sort of feedback to let you know if you're making the right motion, which is why yeah. I, I love camera for those types of sessions. I, I think that that can really help people with, okay, the technique or the shots aren't going well, but I've started creating the motion I'm looking for and, and sticking with it long-term, like you were talking about. Um, 
you know, can be really important. Obviously you had a, you had a launch monitor, which a lot of people don't have mm-hmm. for practice, but I'm sure your setup and your swing in those sessions, you'd even have been able to see a little bit on camera was much different to what you were doing before. Yeah. I mean, the, the launch monitor allowed me to quantify something that was is difficult to see, such as the mm-hmm. angle of attack. Um, but in terms of, you know, when we are making a swing change, if the result isn't what we want it to be, and for a certain period of time, that shouldn't be the goal, you know, but, but with that said, if the result is not what we want it to be, you have to look into those fundamentals that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So what was the face strike? What was the ground contact? What was the face direction? So, you know, I know that when I was doing my angle of attack change, well, the face strike changed, you know, I was hitting it low, high on the face uh, and the face direction changed a little bit. So with that knowledge, I was able to just recalibrate those things. So it's, it's not voodoo, but you do need someone who can understand those things as well, either through learning these things yourself. They're not too difficult to learn. You know, I've taught beginners to learn the big three. Uh, or using a coach that understands those things, but but yeah, if you if you're making a swing change and the result is not as you want, it's because you have to recalibrate one of those big three that I talked about in in the vast majority of cases. Um, something you talked about earlier that it was it's more difficult for an amateur to make the change. I do agree with that because of things like time constraints, coordination in in higher handicap players is not as good, but in some ways it's easier. So, for example, when I'm driving the ball, I already had a functional way of doing it. So for me to introduce mm-hmm. something actually takes is more likely to take me away from function. That's why it's very difficult to teach tall players because they're already functional. Adding anything is more likely to throw a spanner into the works. Whereas if you've got someone with a 50-yard slice and you get them to close the face, yes, they might not do it consistently. They might, uh, you know struggle to learn it but you're you're going to change that pattern for them it's going to take them away from this dysfunction this 50 yard slice and towards function where they're going to add yardage so in some ways it can be easier for players it does depend on what you're changing with them though yeah i know that's brilliant the last thing i'd like to kind of touch on adam is block practice which i think block and random practice i think are terms that are too broad to cover things that people can be doing in their practice. It's usually the two that people think of. And I think block practice is usually say investigated as when people are just doing the same thing over and over without maybe a whole lot of thought behind what they're doing and probably hitting shots in quick succession. I think that People can do the same thing over and over in practice when trying to make a technique improvement to really good effect. If there's high engagement, they're taking their time and they're really, really focusing on the type of motion that they're looking for, having some sort of feedback to let them know if they're doing it, maybe taking you know a little bit of time between each ball to do some exaggerations of the motion they're doing, which is still probably under the label of block practice but i don't think there i don't think any of the research that's been done showing block practice to be ineffective is being researched on people who are practicing like that because yeah, yeah. i've spent a decent amount of time now on pga tour ranges best players in the world and i can promise you that a lot of what they are doing in their practice 
would probably fall under the big umbrella term of block practice, but it's definitely not the type of block practice that is being researched in the universities with the students they grab in for six or 10 weeks, if you get me. I think there's much more intricacies involved in terms of what can actually be going on with the different practice banner labels, if you get me. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things there. I'll, I'll give a little bit of a pushback to that in terms of correlation isn't causation. You know, you can often look at a tall player and say that, okay, they're doing this, therefore this is the right way to do it. It's similar to, you know, if someone was in the gym 10 hours a day and they're doing things inefficiently and they still get to look like Mr. Olympia. So, you know, maybe they've got good genetics, maybe they, um, you know, just the amount of training they're doing, even though it's inefficient, is working for them. So there, there is that also. You know, you could look at tall players and say, well, they're the epitome of why block practice sucks because you you stand and you watch them on the range and they can hit shot after shot after shot. I've seen it where they just look like it's on a string. They they never miss their target on the range. You think, how can this player shoot anything but a 59 today? And then they go on the first tee, spray it right, spray it left. You know, you've seen they only have like 60% of their targets hit. So um, there, there's that as well, you know, even even at the tour level you look at them block practice it doesn't represent what they actually do on the course however with that said i'm not anti-block practice i'm not against it i think it's really valuable you know um, me and my podcast partner play virtual ping pong i'm trying to get you to do this <laughs> play it on the <laughs> oculus quest and uh you know i do a lot of random practice i play a lot of games and things but there'll, there'll be times where i'm like you know what i just don't have this one shot you know there's back backhand tops when i just can't hit it hard without sending it over the table so i'll set up uh the ball machine to send it at me over and over again and i just rehearse it over and over again until i've got it down and so there is value, I do feel, even though the research doesn't really show it, I still feel there's value uh, to doing block practice, especially when you layer on the things that you're talking about, being very deliberate about it, being very conscious about what you're doing. So all these things yeah, need to be taken into account. And I do feel like the more we get research on it, we'll see that block practice is not as bad as everybody says it to be. However, with that said, even, even with the virtual ping pong, once I've done that enough, I need to switch it. I need to start layering on more randomness to it. Once I feel I've got it to a certain level, I need to start, okay, let's do that and mix it in with a forehand as well. So I start to add more randomness to it. And then once I've got it there, I put myself in a game situation again. And inevitably, it doesn't transfer at first. But the more you play in that game situation, the the, bet, the more it comes out, the more it'll start to, your new skills will start to come out. So it depends on the goal, right? It depends on what you want. Is the goal to learn how to do something you can't yet do? Mm -hmm. if, if that's the case, I feel block practice is a very, very good tool. However, if, if it's, right, I've got it to a certain point now and I want to be able to transfer it to the course, transfer it to a game-like situation, that's where we start and need to layer on more random practice and make it more realistic. So, you know, changing targets, changing clubs, changing shot type, even changing lie maybe, adding more time between shots. 
um, adding more context, so things like adding pressure to the situation as well, making it more routine, uh, more more real, doing your routines, perhaps simulating the game more. You know, I love playing. I've got, I'm very fortunate. I've got a simulator in my office, so I can literally play golf course courses in my office. So it's a really good training for me when I'm going to play on the course, much better than block practices. Um, or even if it's a decision-making process, you know, I've, I've had players come to me and they say, well, look, I see my strokes gain says I, I suck at, at uh, you know, 10 foot putts. I'm losing a lot of strokes at 10 foot putts. I say, okay, what have you been doing to change it? And they say, well, I'm just practicing over and over again, my stroke, just stroking to a straight putt over and over again. And I say, well, ha- what's happening with your strokes gain? They say, well, it's not improving. So we might find there is a decision-making error that's causing them to be bad at that. Maybe they're not reading the break correctly. And so they're off practicing the wrong thing. They're practicing their stroke for, for number one, and they're doing it in a block practice fashion. If you need to improve decision-making, if you need to improve something like green reading or speed control, you're better off sticking yourself in random scenarios you know go up to a putt place it in a new scenario so you have to go through that process of saying to yourself how much do i think this is going to break then going through the process hitting the putt and then analyzing did i overread that did i underread that okay new situation now let's go through that process again takes a longer time you're going to make more mistakes you're going to have a lower performance while you're doing that it's much easier just to stick yourself on the same break and hit a couple of putts and then you've got it, but there's no, you're not making the decision-making uh, process there. So I'm, I'm always just trying to identify with a player, what is it that they need to improve more? And then, which is obvious, right? Sounds obvious, but so many of us don't do it. And then setting a task or challenge or intervention to actually improve that skill. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. I think um, an important point on the blocked versus random practice, or let's say, you know, technique heavy versus random practice also is how much golf the person is playing because golf is essentially random practice. Like the, like one of the reasons why the tour pros might do so much kind of technique and calibration heavy work on the range is they literally play golf five days a week or six days a week. You know what I mean? So they're get, they've gotten so much, of the decision-making and variety and things like that. It's like, no, there's just a couple of like basic things here that I need to get on top of from like a baseline standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, if you're, if you've got a player who's playing a lot already, maybe their range time could be more dedicated away from playing skills and more mm-hmm. towards, you know, opening up new techniques. Uh, but even with that, you, you'd almost need this transition between, you know, this uber technical work and actually going out and playing. If, if that player is finding that they can't take their range swing, their new swing to the course, uh, maybe they need that intermediate step of simulating the game on the range as well. So, you know, doing, I, I like those those type of things where you do a lot of the technical work, a lot of skill work, then some intermediate step simulating it on the range and then going out playing. I think that's a really good balance for people. Last thing, this is probably difficult because there's so many variables can go into it, but we're heading into like kind of winter time here. So it's off season for a lot of people. For someone to make, really big progress on 
let's just say their ball striking, we've touched on whether that can be done via, you know, really technique or skill. But if someone's really thinking about like, I want to massively upgrade how well I can hit a golf ball here. What sort of timelines or patience do you think people need to have in mind in terms of how long this might take to really see big changes and and drastically, you know, help them lower their scores? Yeah, it depends where someone's starting. You know, if that player has their low point behind the ball, you can do something really quick and simple, uh, move that low point forwards. It could be an intention or a technique, and that completely lights their game up. You know, maybe I give the example earlier of moving the low point forward and someone shank, starting shanking it where the performance isn't great. But you you can equally have someone who moves their low point forwards and they improve their face strike mm-hmm. as well. And so in that regard, it can it can really unlock some new consistency instantly. Um, similarly, you know, improving skills. I've had players who consistently hit out of the heel. And, you know, they can go for weeks without shanking it, but they're still hitting out of the heel. And then all of a sudden, they, the pattern shifts more heelwards for a little bit and they, they have a bout of shanks and they can't, they need to walk off the course effectively. Uh, and so in that example, you know, learning how to hit more on the toe, as simple as that sounds, learning the skills through certain drills of hitting on the toe can really very quickly unlock a new ability in that player and move them away from shanksville. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, quick changes can definitely happen and they can stick as well. When players learn to move the strike across the face, those skills last a lifetime. So I hate this. I hate this idea that quick fixes, you know, there's this connotation that quick fix doesn't last. That's just, just not true. I've had several shankers. We fix them quickly and it lasts a lifetime. Uh, but you... Even with skill development, you have to keep working at it. It's like anything. It's like tuning a piano or tuning a guitar. If you leave it long enough, it's going to go out of tune. And so you have to keep doing it. But uh, the more you do it, the quicker you can retune things. So, you know, it doesn't take me long to, to recalibrate a face strike, maybe two, three shots now. And that's a good advantage because once you learn these skills and have them in place, it actually means you need less practice in the future. You know, as a junior, I needed to practice 40 hours a week just to keep my game in tip-top shape. Now, I can just get, grab a, a set of clubs, do a little warm-up, and recalibrate things really quickly because I have the skills to be able to do that. So, yeah, learning these skills can really help lower the amount of, of practice. I think I've forgotten the question now. <laughs> no, you're good. We do? I was I – was, so it's it's interesting. So – I asked you the type of timeline that players can be thinking about for like really significant golf improvement. And I was so kind of, I was teeing you up. I thought you were going to say like players need to be patient and it will probably take a long time to get much better, which I think there's a lot of truth to, but you also, well, what you said was that players can have dramatic improvements very quickly. If there's a fundamental that they're currently missing it can be added quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if, if there's something missing and you you add it, it's it's not always the case. It's a bit of a coin flip. You know whether the result will be better instantly. We can change a variable very quickly. You know, you could, like I said, you can move someone's ground contact forwards very quickly. You know, within one swing, often whether that results in better outcomes with the ball is is a different story. It's, it's uh, 
And that's the value of a coach really is when I give an intervention to someone, I'll be looking at their mix of variables. I'll be saying, right, they've got an open face, their ground contact is early and um, their face strike is heel. Okay, this one thought or drill is going to fix all of those things. So that's the advantage of a coach. Or you could work on each one individually, really. But yes, yeah, sometimes it can take a long time. Sometimes it could be instant. You really, I think, the, the main thing would be get feedback on what you're trying to change and always get feedback on the big three. Because those are the things that determine the quality of shots. So if you're going to make a big a, a swing change, big or small, still try to get feedback on the big three. So the ways that you would do that, by the way, would be if you spray the club face with Dr. Shaw's foot spray, Dactarin if you're in the UK, or CVS if you're cheap like me and you want a cheap version of it. So spray the club face lightly, and then you, when you hit shots, it'll leave an imprint on the face. And you can see where you struck on the face. So that's how to get that variable down. So, you, so if you hit a bad shot and you look on the face and it's right on the sweet spot, you can, you can assume that it wasn't that variable that was the issue. Next, looking at ground contact. If you, if you manage to be able to practice on a grass range, just use the same spray and spray a line on the ground. Place the ball on top and then you can see where your divot started. So if you look down and you see that the divot started two inches behind, that was the reason why the ball didn't fly very far. And then the ball flight will tell you a lot about what the club face was doing. All else being equal, if the ball's more right or left, the club face was more right or left. Yes, there are other variables with direction, but club face will be able to change the end result of it. So get feedback on that all the time and, and you will get good results. Because if you get those three, in decent position, the result is going to be good. It's, there's not many definites in golf, but that is those, those are some of them there. Excellent. Adam, if people want to find out more um, about your stuff and about your educational resources, what do you have available? Where can they find them? How can they get in contact? So adamyounggolf.com. Um, I have lots of different programs. If you're a real golf geek and you want to dive into, I think, 130 hours of content now, everything strategy, psychology, skill development, training, technique is quite technique heavy as well. That's my next level golf program. So it's really deep. It's not for everybody I understand. So I kind of pulled some information out from that. And uh, the strike plan is the more pared down version. There's still everything you need in there, uh, but it's a more pared down version that's dedicated to improving your strike. There's even a winter module in there. That, so you can do drills in your house. As long as you can swing a golf club, you don't even need to hit a real ball. These drills will work for you using little things like guitar picks and things like that. Uh, the accuracy plan helps improve if you're more of a slicer or hooker, so missing left and right. The, the accuracy plan is better for you. And if you're a nerd who likes reading and wants to dive into um, motor learning and practice design, then the practice manual is my book that's available on Amazon. So you can get all of the information on those things is adamyounggolf.com and then have a look at the products. Super, Adam, that's great. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to getting this one out.